when I published Ulysses by James Joyce in my little bookshop called Shakespeare and Company in Paris. Look, look, the dust is growing. My branches lost Lord James. Stately, plump, buck bargain. All perfume, yes, and his heart was going like mad. And yes, I said yes, I will, yes. Friends of Shakespeare and Company read Ulysses by James Joyce. Read today by Greg Proops and Jennifer Kanega. What parallel courses did Bloom and Stephen follow returning? Starting united, both at normal walking pace from Beresford Place, they followed in the order named Lower and Middle Gardner Streets and Mountjoy Square West, then at reduced pace, each bearing left, Gardner's Place by an inadvertence, as far as the farther corner of Temple Street North, then at reduced pace with interruptions of halt, bearing right, Temple Street North, as far as Hardwick Place. Approaching, disparate, at relaxed walking pace, they crossed both the circus before George's church diametrically, the cord in any circle being less than the arc which it subtends. Of what did the do umbrate deliberate during their itinerary? Music, literature, Ireland, Dublin, Paris, friendships, woman, prostitution, diet, the influence of gaslight, or the light of an arc and glow lamps on the growth of adjoining paraheliotropic trees, exposed corporation emergency dust buckets, the Roman Catholic Church, ecclesiastical celibacy, the Irish nation, Jesuit education, careers, the study of medicine, the past day, the maleficent influence of the pre-Sabbath, Stephen's collapse. Did Bloom discover common factors of similarity between their respective like and unlike reactions to experience? Both were sensitive to artistic impressions, musical in preference to plastic or pictorial. Both preferred a continental to an insular manner of life, a cis-Atlantic to a transatlantic place of residence both indurated by early domestic training and an inherited tenacity of heterodox resistance, profess their disbelief in many orthodox, religious, national, social, and ethical doctrines. Both admitted the alternately stimulating and obtunding influence of heterosexual magnetism. Were their views on some points divergent? Stephen dissented openly from Bloom's view on the importance of dietary and civic self-help, while Bloom dissented tacitly from Stephen's views on the eternal affirmation of the spirit of man in literature. Bloom assented covertly to Stephen's rectification of the anachronism involved in assigning the date of the conversion of the Irish nation to Christianity from Druidism by Patrick, son of Calpurnus, son of Petitus, son of Odysseus, sent by Pope Celestine I in the year 432 in the reign of Leary to the year 260 or thereabouts in the reign of Cormac MacArt died 266 A.D., suffocated by imperfect deglutition of aliment at Sleddy and interred at Rossnery. The collapse, which Bloom ascribed to gastric inanition and certain chemical compounds of varying degrees of adulteration and alcoholic strength, accelerated by mental exertion and the velocity of rapid circular motion in a relaxing atmosphere. Stephen attributed to the reapparition of a matitudinal cloud perceived by both from two different points of observation. Sandy Cove, and Dublin. At first, no bigger than a woman's hand. 
Was there one point on which their views were equal and negative? The influence of gaslight or electric light on the growth of adjoining paraheliotropic trees. Had Bloom discussed similar subjects during nocturnal perambulations in the past? In 1884, with Owen Goldberg and Cecil Turnbull, at night on public thoroughfares between Longwood Avenue and Leonard's Corner, and Leonard's Corner and Sing Street, and Sing Street and Bloomfield Avenue. In 1885, with Percy Apjohn in the evenings, reclined against the wall between Gibraltar Villa and Bloomfield House in Crumlin, Barony of Uppercross. In 1886, occasionally, with casual acquaintances and prospective purchasers on doorsteps, in front parlors, in third-class railway carriages of suburban lines. In 1888, frequently with Major Brian Tweedy and his daughter, Miss Marion Tweedy, together and separately on the lounge, in Matthew Dillon's house in Roundtown, once in 1892 and once in 1893, with Julius Mastiansky on both occasions in the parlor of his, Bloom's house, in Lombard Street, West. What reflection concerning the irregular sequence of dates, 1884, 1885, 1886, 1888, 1892, 1893, 1904, did Bloom make before their arrival at their destination? He reflected that the progressive extension of the field of individual development and experience was of their interdividual relations. As in what ways? From an existence to existence, he came to many, and as one received. Existence with existence, he was with any, as any with any. From existence to non-existence, gone he would be, by all, as none perceived. What action did Bloom make on their arrival at their destination? At the house steps of the fourth of the equidifferent uneven numbers, number seven Eccles Street, he inserted his hand mechanically into the back pocket of his trousers to obtain his latch key. Was it there? It was in the corresponding pocket of the trousers, which he had worn on the day but one preceding. Why was he doubly irritated? Because he'd forgotten, and because he remembered that he had reminded himself twice not to forget. What were, then, the alternatives before the premeditatedly, respectively, and inadvertently keyless couple? To enter or not to enter. To knock or not to knock. Bloom's decision? A stratagem. Resting his feet on the dwarf wall, he climbed over the area railings, compressed his hat on his head, grasped two points at the lower union of rails and stiles, lowered his body gradually by its length of five feet nine inches and a half to within two feet ten inches of the area pavement, and allowed his body to move freely in space by separating himself from the railings and crouching in preparation for the impact of the fall. Did he fall? By his body's known weight of 11 stone and 4 pounds in Averdupois measure, as certified by the graduated machine for periodical self-weighing in the premises of Francis Friedman, pharmaceutical chemist of 19 Frederick Street North, on the last feast of the Ascension, to wit, the 12th day of May of the Bissectil year, 1904, of the Christian era, Jewish era 5,664, Mohammedan era 1,322, Golden number 5, EPAC 13, Solar Cycle 9, Dominical Letter CB, Roman Inclination 2, Julian Period 6617, MXMIV. Did he rise uninjured by concussion? 
Regaining new stable equilibrium, he rose uninjured, though concussed by the impact, raised the latch of the area door by the exertion of force at its freely moving flange, and by leverage of the first kind applied at its fulcrum, gained retarded access to the kitchen through the subjacent scullery, ignited a lucifer match by friction, set free inflammable coal gas by turning on the vent cock, lit a high flame which by regulating he reduced to quiescent candescence, and lit finally a portable candle. What discrete succession of images did Stephen meanwhile perceive? Reclined against the area railings, he perceived through the transparent kitchen panes a man regulating a gas flame of 14 CP, a man lighting a candle, a man removing in turn each of his two boots, a man leaving the kitchen holding a candle of 1 CP. Did the man reappear elsewhere? After a lapse of four minutes, the glimmer of his candle was discernible through the semi-transparent, semi-circular glass fanlight over the hall door. The hall door turned gradually on its hinges. In the open space of the doorway, the man reappeared without his hat with his candle. Did Stephen obey his sign? Yes. Entering softly, he helped to close and chain the door and followed softly along the hallway the man's back and listed feet and lighted candle past a lighted crevice of doorway on the left and carefully down a turning staircase of more than five steps into the kitchen of Bloom's house. What did Bloom do? He extinguished the candle by a sharp expiration of breath upon its flame, drew two spoon-seat deal chairs to the hearthstone, one for Stephen with its back to the area window, the other for himself when necessary, knelt on one knee, composed in the great a pyre of cross-laid, resin-tipped sticks and various colored papers and irregular polygons of best Abram coal at 21 shillings a ton from the yard of Mr.'s Flower and MacDonald of 14 Delir Street, kindled it at three projecting points of paper with one ignited lucifer match, thereby releasing the potential energy contained in the fuel by allowing its carbon and hydrogen elements to enter into free union with the oxygen of the air. Of what similar apparitions did Stephen think? Of others elsewhere in other times, who, kneeling on one knee or on two, had kindled fires for him. Of Brother Michael in the infirmary of the College of the Society of Jesus at Clongo's Wood, Salins, in the county of Kildare. Of his father, Simon Dedalus, in an unfurnished room of his first residence in Dublin, number 13 Fitzgibbon Street of his godmother, Miss Kate Morkin, and the house of her dying sister, Miss Julia Morkin, at 15 Usher's Island, of his mother Mary, wife of Simon Dedalus, in the kitchen of number 12 North Richmond Street on the morning of the feast of St. Francis Xavier, 1898, of the dean of studies, Father Butt, in the physics theater of University College, 16 Stevens Green North, of his sister Dilly, Delia, in his father's house in Cabra. What did Stephen see? on raising his gaze to the height of a yard, from the fire towards the opposite wall. Under a row of five coiled spring house bells, a curvilinear rope stretched between two holdfasts athwart across the recess beside the chimney pier, from which hung four small-sized square handkerchiefs folded unattached consecutively in adjacent rectangles and one pair of ladies' gray hose with real suspender tops and feet in their habitual position clamped by three erect wooden pegs two at their outer extremities, and the third at the point of junction. 
What did Bloom see on the range? On the right, smaller hob, a blue enameled saucepan. On the left, larger hob, a black iron kettle. What did Bloom do at the range? He removed the saucepan at the left hob, rose and carried the iron kettle to the sink in order to tap the current by turning the faucet to let it flow. Yes. From Roundwood Reservoir in County Wicklow, of a cubic capacity of 2,400 million gallons, percolating through a subterranean aqueduct of filter mains, of single and double pipage constructed at an initial plant cost of five pounds per linear yard, by way of the Dargle, Rathdown, Glen of the Downs, and Callowhill, to the 26-acre reservoir at Still Organ, a distance of 22 statute miles, and thence through a system of relieving tanks by a gradient of 250 feet to the city boundary at Eustace Bridge, Upper Leeson Street, though from prolonged summer drought and daily supply of 12.5 million gallons, the water had fallen below the sill of the overflow weir, for which reason the borough surveyor and waterworks engineer Mr. Spencer Harty, C.E., on the instructions of the Waterworks Committee, had prohibited the use of municipal water for purposes other than those of consumption, envisaging the possibility of recourse being had to the impotable water of the Grand and Royal Canals as in 1893, particularly as the South Dublin Guardians, notwithstanding their ration of 15 gallons per day per pauper, supplied through a six-inch meter, had been convicted of a wastage of 20,000 gallons per night by a reading of their meter on the affirmation of the law agent of the corporation, Mr. Ignatius Rice, solicitor, thereby acting to the detriment of another section of the public, self-supporting taxpayers, solvent, sound. What in water did Bloom, water lover, drawer of water, water carrier returning to the range, admire? Its universality, its democratic equality and constancy to its nature in seeking its own level, its vastness in the ocean of Mercator's projection, its unplumbed profundity in the Sundom Trench of the Pacific exceeding 8,000 fathoms, the restlessness of its waves and surface particles visiting in turn all points of its seaboard, the independence of its units, the variability of states of sea, its hydrostatic quiescence in calm, its hydrogenetic turgidity in neap and spring tides, its subsidence after devastation, its sterility in the circumpolar ice caps, Arctic and Antarctic, its climactic and commercial significance, its preponderance of three to one over the dry land of the globe, its indisputable hegemony, extending in square leagues over all the region below the sub-equatorial tropic of Capricorn, the multi-secular stability of its primeval basin, its lutefulvous bed, its capacity to dissolve and hold in solution all soluble substances, including millions of tons of the most precious metals, its slow erosions of peninsulas and downward-tending promontories, its alluvial deposits, its weight and volume and density, its imperturbability in lagoons and highland tarns, its gradation of colors in the torrid and temperate and frigid zones, its vehicular ramifications in continental, lake-contained streams and confluent ocean-flowing rivers, with their tributaries and transoceanic currents, Gulf Stream, north and south, equatorial courses, its violence in sea quakes, water spouts, artesian wells, eruptions, torrents, eddies, freshets, spates, ground swells, watersheds, water partings, geysers, cataracts, whirlpools, maelstroms, inundations, deluges, cloudbursts, 
its vast, circumterrestrial, a horizontal curve, its secrecy in springs and latent humidity revealed by robotomantic or hygrometric instruments, and exemplified by the hole in the wall at Ashtown Gate, saturation of air, distillation of dew, the simplicity of its composition, two constituent parts of hydrogen with one constituent part of oxygen, its healing virtues, its buoyancy in the waters of the Dead Sea, its persevering penetrativeness in runnels, gullies, inadequate dams, leaks on shipboard, its properties for cleansing, quenching thirst and fire, nourishing vegetation, its infallibility as paradigm and paragon, its metamorphoses as vapor, mist, cloud, rain, sheet, snow, hail, its strength in rigid hydrants, its variety of forms and lows and bays and gulfs and bites and guts and lagoons and atolls and archipelagos and sounds and fjords and minches and tidal estuaries and arms of sea, its solidity in glaciers, icebergs, ice flows, its docility in working hydraulic mill wheels, turbines, dynamos, electric power stations, bleach works, tanneries, scutch mills, its utility in canals, rivers, if navigable, floating and graving docks, its potentiality derivable from harnessed tides of watercourses falling from level to level, its submarine fauna and flora, anacoustic, photophobe, numerically, if not literally, the inhabitants of the globe, its ubiquity as constituting 90% of the human body, the noxiousness of its effluvia and lacustrine marshes, pestilential fens, faded flower water, stagnant pools in the waning moon. Having set the half-filled kettle on the now-burning coals, why did he return to the still-flowing tap? To wash his soiled hands with a partially consumed tablet of Barrington's lemon-flavored soap, to which paper still adhered, bought 13 hours previously for fourpence, and still unpaid for in fresh, cold, never-changing, ever-changing water, and dried them face and hands in a long, red-bordered holland cloth passed over a wooden revolving roller. What reason did Stephen give for declining Bloom's offer? That he was hydrophobe, hating partial contact by immersion or total by submersion in cold water, his last bath having taken place in the month of October of the preceding year, disliking the aqueous substances of glass and crystal, distrusting aquacities of thought and language. What impeded Bloom from giving Stephen counsels of hygiene and prophylactic to which should be added suggestions concerning a preliminary wetting of the head and contraction of the muscles with rapid splashing of the face and neck and thoracic and epigastric region in case of sea or river bathing, the parts of the human anatomy most sensitive to cold being the nape, stomach, and thinner or sole of foot the incompatibility of aquacity with the erratic originality of genius. What additional didactic counsels did he similarly repress? Dietary. Concerning the respective percentage of protein and caloric energy in bacon, saltling, and butter, the absence of the former in the last named and the abundance of the latter in the first named. Which seemed to the host to be the predominant qualities of his guest? Confidence in himself. An equal and opposite power of abandonment and recuperation. What 
concomitant phenomenon took place in the vessel of liquid by the agency of fire. The phenomenon of ebullition, fanned by a constant updraft of ventilation between the kitchen and the chimney flue, ignition was communicated from the faggots of precombustible fuel to polyhedral masses of bituminous coal, containing in compressed mineral forms the foliated fossilized decidua of primeval forests, which had in turn derived their vegetative existence from the sun, primal source of heat, radiant, transmitted through omnipresent, luminiferous, diaterminous ether. Heat, convected, a mode of motion developed by such combustion was constantly and increasingly conveyed from the source of calorification to the liquid contained in the vessel, being radiated through the uneven, unpolished, dark surface of the metal iron, in part reflected, in part absorbed, in part transmitted, gradually raising the temperature of the water from normal to boiling point, a rise in temperature expressible as the result of an expenditure of 72 thermal units needed to raise one pound of water from 50 degrees to 212 degrees Fahrenheit. What announced the accomplishment of this rise in temperature? A double falciform ejection of water vapor from under the kettle lid at both sides simultaneously. For what personal purpose could Bloom have applied the water so boiled? To shave himself. What advantages attended shaving by night? A softer beard, a softer brush if intentionally allowed to remain from shave to shave, and the agglutinated lather, a softer skin if unexpectedly encountering female acquaintances in remote places at incustomary hours, quiet reflections upon the course of the day, a cleaner sensation when awaking after a fresher sleep, since matutinal noises, premonitions, and perturbations, a clattered milk can, a postman's double knock, a paper read, re-read while lathering, re-lathering the same spot, a shock, a shoot, with thought of aught he sought, though fraught with naught might cause a faster rate of shaving, and a nick on which incision plaster, with precision cut, and humected, and applied adhered, which was to be done. Why did absence of light disturb him less than presence of noise? Because of the surety of the sense of touch in his firm, full, masculine, feminine, passive, active hand. What quality did it, his hand, possess, but with what counteracting influence? The operative surgical quality, but that he was reluctant to shed human blood even when the end justified the means preferring in their natural order heliotherapy, psychophysicotherapeutics, osteopathic surgery. What lay under exposure on the lower middle and upper shelves of the kitchen dresser opened by Bloom? On the lower shelf, five vertical breakfast plates, six horizontal breakfast saucers on which rested inverted breakfast cups, a mustache cup, uninverted, and saucer of crown derby, four white gold-rimmed egg cups, an open chamois purse displaying coins, mostly copper, and a file of aromatic violet comfits. On the middle shelf, a chipped egg cup containing pepper, a drum of table salt, four conglomerated black olives and oleaginous paper, an empty pot of plum trees potted meat, an oval wicker basket bedded with fiber and containing one jersey pear, a half-empty bottle of William Gilby and Company's white invalid port, half disrobed of its swath of coral pink tissue paper, a packet of Epps soluble cocoa, five ounces of Ann Lynch's choice tea at two shillings per pound in a crinkled lead paper bag, 
a cylindrical canister containing the best crystallized lump sugar, two onions, one the larger, Spanish, entire, the other, smaller, Irish, bisected with augmented service and more redolent, a jar of Irish model dairy's cream, a jug of brown crockery containing a noggin and a quarter of soured adulterated milk converted by heat into water, acidulous serum and semi-solidified curds, which added to the quantity subtracted for Mr. Bloom's and Mrs. Fleming's breakfasts, made one imperial pint. The total quantity originally delivered, two cloves, a haypenny, and a small dish containing a fresh rib steak. On the upper shelf, a battery of jam jars of various sizes and provenances. What attracted his attention lying on the apron of the dresser? Four polygonal fragments of two lacerated scarlet bedding tickets, numbered 8, 8, 7, 8, 8, 6. What reminiscences temporarily corrugated his brow? Reminiscences of coincidences, truth stranger than fiction, pre-indicative of the result of the gold cup flat handicap, the official and definitive result of which he had read in the evening telegraph, late pink edition, in the cabman shelter at Butt Bridge. Where had previous intimations of the result affected or projected been received by him? And Bernard Kiernan's licensed premises, 8, 9, and 10 Little Britain Street. In David Burns' licensed premises, 14 Duke Street. In O'Connell Street Lower, outside Graham Lemons, when a dark man had placed in his hand a throwaway, subsequently thrown away, advertising Elijah, restorer of the church in Zion. In Lincoln Place, outside the premises of F.W. Sweeney & Co., Limited, dispensing chemists. When Frederick M. Bantam Lyons had rapidly and successively requested, perused, and restituted the copy of the current issue of the Freeman's Journal and National Press, which he had been about to throw away, subsequently thrown away, and had proceeded toward the oriental edifice of the Turkish and warm baths, 11 Leinster Street, with the light of inspiration shining in his countenance and bearing in his arms the secret of the race, graven in the language of prediction. What qualifying considerations allayed his perturbations? The difficulties of interpretation, since the significance of any event followed its occurrence as variably as the acoustic report followed the electrical discharge, and of counterestimating against an actual loss by failure to interpret the total sum of possible losses proceeding originally from a successful interpretation. His mood? He had not risked. He did not expect. He had not been disappointed. He was satisfied. What satisfied him? To have sustained no positive loss. To have brought a positive gain to others. Light to the Gentiles. How did Bloom prepare a collation for a Gentile? He poured into two teacups, two level spoonfuls, four in all, of absoluble cocoa, and proceeded according to the directions for use printed on the label, to each adding after sufficient time for infusion the prescribed ingredients for diffusion in the manner and in the quantity prescribed. What supererogatory marks of special hospitality did the host show his guest? Relinquishing his symposiacal right to the mustache cup of imitation crown derby presented to him by his only daughter, Millicent, Millie, he substituted a cup identical with that of his guest and served extraordinarily to his guest and, in reduced measure to himself, 
The viscous cream ordinarily reserved for the breakfast of his wife, Marion, Molly. Was the guest conscious of and did he acknowledge these marks of hospitality? His attention was directed to them by his host, Jocosely, and he accepted them seriously as he drank, in joco-serious silence, Epps' mass product, the creature cocoa. Were there marks of hospitality which he contemplated but suppressed, reserving them for another and for himself on future occasions to complete the act begun? The reparation of a fissure in the length of one and a half inches on the right side of his guest's jacket. A gift to his guest of one of the four ladies' handkerchiefs if, and when ascertained to be, in a presentable condition. Who drank more quickly? Bloom. Having the advantage of ten seconds at the initiation, and taking from the concave surface of a spoon along the handle of which a steady flow of heat was conducted, three sips to his opponent's one, six to two, nine to three. What cerebration accompanied his frequentative act? Concluding by inspection, but erroneously, that his silent companion was engaged in mental composition, he reflected on the pleasures derived from literature of an instruction rather than of amusement, as he himself had applied to the works of William Shakespeare more than once for the solution of difficult problems in imaginary or real life. Had he found their solution? In spite of careful and repeated reading of certain classical passages, aided by a glossary, he had derived imperfect conviction from the text, the answers not bearing on all points. What lines concluded his first piece of original verse written by him, potential poet, at the age of 11 in 1877 on the occasion of the offering of three prizes at 10 shillings, 5 shillings, and 2 and 6 pence respectively by the Shamrock, a weekly newspaper? An ambition to squint at my verses in print makes me hope that for these you'll find room. If you so condescend, then please place at the end the name of yours truly, L. Bloom. Did he find four separating forces between his temporary guest and him? Name, age, race, creed. What anagrams had he made on his name in youth? Leopold Bloom. El Pod Bomul. Malodopalub. Balopidum. Old Elibo M.P. What acrostic upon the abbreviation of his first name had he, kinetic poet, sent to Miss Marion Tweedy on the 14th, February, 1888? Poets oft have sung in rhyme, of music sweet their praise divine. Let them hymn, it's nine times nine, dearer far than song or wine. You are mine, the world is mine. What had prevented him from completing a topical song, music by R.G. Johnston, on the events of the past or fixtures for the actual years, entitled If Brian Baru Could But Come Back and See Old Dublin Now, commissioned by Michael Gunn, lessee of the Gaiety Theatre, 46, 47, 48, 49 South King Street, and to be introduced into the sixth scene, The Valley of Diamonds, of the second edition, 30 January, 1893, of the grand annual Christmas pantomime, Sinbad the Sailor, written by Greenleaf Whittier, scenery by George A. Jackson and Cecil Hicks, costumes by Mrs. and Miss Whelan, produced by R. Shelton, 26 December, 1892, under the personal supervision of Mrs. Michael Gunn, valets by Jesse Noir, 
Harlequinade by Thomas Otto and sung by Nellie Boverist, Principal Girl. Firstly, oscillation between events of imperial and local interest. The anticipated Diamond Jubilee of Queen Victoria, born 1820, acceded 1837, and the post-anticipated opening of the new municipal fish market. Secondly, apprehension of opposition from extreme circles on the questions of the respective visits of their royal highnesses, the Duke and Duchess of York, real, and of His Majesty King Brian Baru, imaginary. Thirdly, a conflict between professional etiquette and professional emulation concerning the recent erections of the Grand Lyric Hall on Berg Quay and the Theatre Royal in Hawkins Street. Fourthly, distraction resultant from the compassion for Nellie Boberist's non-intellectual, non-political, non-topical expression of countenance and concupiscence caused by Nellie Boberist's revelations of white articles of non-intellectual, non-political, non-topical underclothing, while she, Nellie Boverist, was in the articles. Fifthly, the difficulties of the selection of appropriate music and humorous allusions from everybody's book of jokes, 1,000 pages and a laugh in every one. Sixthly, the rhymes, homophonous and cacophonous, associated with the names of the new Lord Mayor, Daniel Tallon, the new High Sheriff, Thomas Pyle, and the new Solicitor General, Dunbar Plunkett Barton. What relation existed between their ages? Sixteen years before, in 1888, when Bloom was of Stephen's present age, Stephen was six. Sixteen years after, in 1920, when Stephen would be of Bloom's present age, Bloom would be 54. In 1936, when Bloom would be 70 and Stephen 54, their ages initially in the ratio of 16 to aught would be as 17 and a half to 13 and a half, the proportion increasing and the disparity diminishing, according as arbitrary future years were added, for if the proposition existing in 1883 had continued immutable, conceiving that to be possible till then, 1904, when Stephen was 22, Bloom would be 374, and in 1920, when Stephen would be 38, as Bloom then was, Bloom would be 646, while in 1952, when Stephen would have attained the maximum post-Diluvian age of 70, Bloom, being 1190 years alive, having been born in the year 714, would have surpassed by 221 years the maximum antediluvian age, that of Methuselah, 969 years, while if Stephen would continue to live until he would attain that age in the year 3072 AD, Bloom would have been obliged to have been alive 83,300 years, having been obliged to have been born in the year 81,396 B.C. What events might nullify these calculations? The cessation of existence of both or either, the inauguration of a new era or calendar, the annihilation of the world and consequent extermination of the human species, inevitable but impredictable. How many previous encounters proved their pre-existing acquaintance? Two, the first in the lilac garden of Matthew Dillon's house, Medina Villa, Kimmage Road, Roundtown, in 1887, in the company of Stephen's mother, Stephen being then of the age of five and reluctant to give his hand in salutation. The second, 
in the coffee room of Breslin's Hotel on a rainy Sunday in the January of 1892, in the company of Stephen's father and Stephen's granduncle, Stephen being then five years older. <laughs> 